0: back to your seats. You can go ahead and turn in a Bible to Luke chapter 18. Again, as you're making your way back to your seat, we'll be looking again this morning in Luke's gospel as we continue moving forward in the latter half of his gospel and we are looking this morning again in the 18th chapter, where we've been now for a few weeks, but we're looking this morning at verses 18 through 30. So again, if you brought a copy of God's Word, feel free to turn there or it's printed for you in the bulletin on page 9. But again, Luke 18, we'll begin reading in verse 18 and go through verse 30. And a ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And the man said, all these I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when the man heard these things, he became very sad. for He was extremely rich. And Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle then for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But Jesus said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And Jesus replied, Truly I say to you, There is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever and ever. Amen. In this story, Luke continues to give us example after example. If you remember, I compared it to sort of like him building a stack of Jenga blocks or like sedimentary rock layers. He gives us example after example of what a citizen of Christ's kingdom looks like. And what we have seen in example after example is not what the society then or his disciples first thought. Again, as they were putting together a a target audience profile or a profile of the the kingdom of God, it is not who they would have thought at first glance. And again, it's true even today, isn't that true? For, For both then and now, we tend to judge books by their covers. We draw assumptions and conclusions based on externals, And more often than not, the externals that we use to to gauge the worth of somebody or to, to gauge their merit, those externals are typically material. The clothes that we wear and the latest brands or fashions, the cars that we drive, the houses we live in, the positions that we hold in society, the influence or the power that we wield, again, these external or material metrics. But again, when this is the metric that is employed, what we tend then to conclude is that the kingdom of Christ also then belongs to what the kingdoms of this world belong to, or or who who they belong to. The healthy, the wealthy, the wise, the bold, and the beautiful Again, celebrities and influencers, power brokers. The times may have changed. The the historical context is certainly different. How we would define even something like a celebrity or or a power broker is certainly different then than it is today. But the principle remains that we judge books by their covers. We, We again measure by these externals. Well, here... On the heels of last week, Jesus holding up helpless children, helpless, you know, nothing in my hand I bring, as we just sung a minute ago in Rock of Ages. Here on the heels of him bringing up the example last week of of helpless children as an example of his kingdom. And after before that, heralding the helpless widow and not the power broking judge. Or lauding the repentant tax collector, And again, not the self righteous Pharisee. Jesus now again comes face to face with somebody who, by society's standards, is a winner. Is a winner of the the greatest degree, but only here to show us in his interaction, yet again, that when it comes to the metrics of the gospel, when it comes to the economics, if I can use that word, of the gospel, The real winning is in the losing. And we see that here as the story unfolds. It says, A ruler asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You see, in contrast to the widow earlier in this chapter who had lost everything, who had nothing material to her name and was at a place of great disadvantage, this man is a ruler he is a, a landowner. He is a, a boss. If anybody watches The Office with Michael Scott, he used to love being a boss and had the world's greatest boss coffee mug and has their whole episode about the greatness of the boss, not Bruce Springsteen, okay, but the, to be a boss, okay? Or if anybody watches the show The Middle, it used to be on, I think, CBS years ago, The Middle. It still has reruns. It's hilarious, okay? Uh, one of their children starts a company called Boss Co., where everybody's a boss, nobody has to actually work, you're just a boss. You're, everybody's a supervisor, okay? So this man is like that in, in a weird way. None of you got that example, that's okay, all right? But he's a boss, okay? He's a landowner, he is a ruler, a, man's of me, a man of means who lacks nothing. But unlike the tax collector, so now we're connecting all of these stories here in the, in the chapters of Luke. Unlike the tax collector, who also was wealthy who also was a man of great means. Well, he was hated, though, because the the way he acquired his wealth was treacherous. The tax collector, you know, grew his wealth on the backs of others. He had betrayed his people. He had skimmed from the top. And so because of that, he was a man of great means, but was hated, and so had very little social capital, if you think of it that way. Well, here, this man is different. Different. He is self-made. He is industrious. Perhaps he's a Fortune 500 CEO, and so while others might be jealous of what he has, he is respected. He is revered. He is prominent and dignified. He is the picture of success. And so in the minds of the disciples, he is also like a softball being lobbed to Jesus. Here is a great person to come along and be a part of his inner circle Who else could be better? This is the quintessential picture of who a man trying to establish an earthly kingdom, and they're still thinking of Jesus in that way, would bring into his inner circle. But what happens, if you notice, and what's interesting is the question that this man brings to Jesus betrays him. It betrays what's really going on on the inside. Even though he has everything, even though he lacks nothing materially or socially, This man, though, apparently knows the truth about himself. Only he knows sort of the emptiness which still remains. Even in his abundance and his opulence, he knows there is still this emptiness inside that all of his money and all of his power and all of his prestige and social capital still can't satisfy. There's something deeper inside of him, something beyond the material, a longing that he cannot meet C.S. Lewis once remarked, if I find myself a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical conclusion is that I was made for another world. You see, this man has everything on the outside, but inside is still searching. And so when Jesus comes along and starts teaching about this kingdom, which is an eternal kingdom, the man's ears perk up. And he asks himself, and he asks Jesus, well, what must I do then? What must I do to, to acquire such wealth? What must I do to be part of such an investment with a dividend structure like that? What must I do? What must I bring to the table? Jesus, tell me, what's the, what's the secret? You know, this is, this is Bernie Madoff, okay, right? Come, what's, what, It's too good to be true. What's the secret here? How do I get a dividend structure, an earning portfolio of that? degree. You see, we don't know for sure if the man views the kingdom properly or just as one more thing he can acquire, but one thing we know for sure is that he does view the kingdom here by his words as achievable. It's achievable. What must I do? What can I do in my strength? Others previously came to Jesus desperate, and they came begging, and they came on their knees. They came reaching out with that last sort of grasp of hope. Think about the woman who had the flow of blood for 12 years, who had spent everything on doctors, who had exhausted all of her wealth and still found no answers. She comes desperate and anonymous and desperately reaching, but not this man. He comes confident in his own ability to achieve What's necessary. Now, we shouldn't be too hard on him. Again, though he has everything, though he has every measure of wealth, he still remained a deep enough thinker. He still remained grounded enough, if you will, to be self aware and to recognize that there is more to this life than we we can see, to know this deeper need. But he's still a bit off in terms of how this Jesus thing works how this gospel of his works. And so Jesus, if you notice, calls him out on it. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. You see many commentators over the years trying to undermine the authority of, of, of Christ, have, have pointed this out as a proof text that Jesus himself didn't consider himself divine. Why do you call me good? O- only, only, God is, only God is good. Only God alone is good. They use it as this proof text to sort of you know, point out that, look, Christ himself didn't, didn't consider himself divine, didn't consider himself God. He just thought of himself as, as a, a rabbi. A good rabbi. We've made more of him than he ever intended. But that is a a terrible misreading. A terrible misreading. It's actually the exact opposite. If you you pause to, to see this and hear this, this is a rhetorical genius on the part of Jesus. Rhetorical genius that immediately diagnoses the man's problem. By asking this rhetorical question, he immediately diagnoses in an instant what this man's problem is. Uh, a few weeks ago, as you know, or maybe even a month or so ago now, as you know, my daughter uh, had shingles. And we were shingles. She's, she's 10. You, know, you don't get shingles when you're, when you're 10. And so we call, it was the weekend, of course. Always in the weekend, you know. Um, so we called Teladoc. And the man immediately said, no, it sounds like shingles, looks like shingles. All the, all the things we described, it, it's shingles. We're like can't be shingles, you know, and this is Teladoc. Maybe like my, maybe my computer lens was smudged and he couldn't see it closely. You know, I'm holding the laptop up to my daughter's face and uh, he couldn't possibly see. So we went to the urgent care down the road. Shingles. What do these people know? (laughs) Urgent care. So we went to our regular physician, like that, shingles. We even went across the street to our neighbor who's a doctor, okay, knocked on his door, very kind, came out. Do you mind taking a look at our daughter, and sorry it's the weekend, he's a very nice man, <smack> shingles, okay? Why? Because they're experts. They're experts in their field and they can immediately diagnose the problem. My son Wyatt used to uh, take hitting lessons for, for during baseball season with a guy who was a very experienced coach. It was amazing what he could do. He, Wyatt would take one or two swings and the man would immediately say, no, no, bring your right foot back just half a step or, you know, drop your... Bring your, bring your shoulder up just a little bit. And then, boom, hit, hit a line drive. And I'd look for hours and couldn't figure it out, right? Well, again, because professionals can diagnose it immediately. Experts can diagnose it immediately. And so it is here with Jesus. The rich young ruler calling Jesus good is a calculation that this man has made using the same calculus he uses in his own life. And for what we would assume he uses, let's say, in in business deals. It's the same calculus that he has used to conclude that he is good, that he is a good commandment-keeping man, so good that he will obviously be able to field whatever requirement is put before him in order now to also gain access to the kingdom that Jesus talks about. And so when asked, again, about the requirements of his kingdom, He uses the same calculus, if you will, to call Jesus good. Certainly, if he's good, then Jesus is is also good. He's a rabbi. He's a professional religious man. Somebody who knows the law front to back. Somebody who speaks about these things for a living. Who is steeped in all the elements of the law. He is the, the quintessential picture of good. And so while this is flattering to Jesus, it's not lip service. And while we cannot fault the man for thinking this way, Jesus, if you notice, points out that it's wrong because it's a definition of goodness based on comparison. And we've seen this now over and over again in the stories of Luke. This man, this rich ruler, has concluded that he is good, that he is better than his neighbor because he does blank. Or he is better than his coworker because he doesn't do blank. We are not as bad as our brother because we do X, Y, and Z. We're, and we're not as bad as our brother because we don't do X, Y, and Z. You see, this is another example writ large of the Pharisee when next to the tax collector thanks God that he is not like other men (laughs) because he's comparing himself. But Jesus here points out this is wrong thinking because it actually sells goodness short. It cheapens goodness. It takes the law and it boils it down into something that we can actually earn or achieve or accomplish on our own instead of the law of God being the hammer which smashes our self-righteousness. You see, it's a bargain bin, discounted view of goodness. And in that way, it cheapens grace. You see, when we have what's called an elevated anthropology, when we think a lot of ourselves, anthropology, the study of man, right? When we have an elevated view of mankind and what we can do and what we can achieve, then we have a low view of soteriology, of salvation. When we think very highly of ourselves, and the law is something that we can definitely pull off on our own if just given enough you know, elbow grease and, and spiritual pep talks, then we think much of ourselves. We don't think we're really that bad. Again, especially in comparison to somebody else, but then we have a very small view of God's salvation. But you see when we're desperate, And we cast ourselves wholly upon his grace and we see this bigger view of his salvation. You see, Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. In calling me good, do you know what that really means? Are you ready to confess me as God and Lord and Savior? Because if so, that's great. (laughs) For that's who I am, Christ is saying. But I know you're not ready to confess that or say that Because you still don't think you're bad enough to need a God who saves you, you're looking for somebody to advise you. He's looking for somebody to advise him on his spiritual investments, just like it's an earthly investment. And how does Christ know that? And how can we also see it here? Look at the dialogue. What does Christ say? You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And then what does the man say in reply? All these I have kept from my youth. This man is a ruler, but in that moment he is the emperor with no clothes. He's the emperor with no clothes. You know the commandments Christ says? And after hearing the list that he rattles off, the man should have said, woe is me, I am undone. I need to file spiritual chapter 11. I'm undone. But instead, what does the man say? Child's play, Jesus. Those are the requirements, child's play. Elementary, my dear Watson. I've kept all of those from my youth. If that's the kingdom ticket, Jesus put me down for 10. Because if you go through all the commandments, I'm doing pretty well. I'm doing pretty well. You see, far from seeing himself as bankrupt, he sees himself as spiritually wealthy. And the ruler here, again, employs the same logic the Pharisee had done earlier in his prayer thanking God. He's not like other men. And thanking God for this exceptional picture of virtue that he believes himself to be again because when examining his own life, he's just looking at the cover. And if judging by the cover, again, he's an all-star. He already has material wealth and social prowess and even again when spiritually Speaking, He's probably not in outright violation of those commandments, just like the Pharisee wasn't. But that's where both men and even those of us today fail to really hear the the crux of Christ's teaching as he offered it in the Sermon on the Mount. You see, far from this man keeping these commandments from day one of his childhood, there wasn't a single day of his life where he kept a single one with all of his heart, and with all of his soul, and with all of his mind. But his failure to see that is then where he gets misguided. Again, think about this man. He could have attended every marriage seminar in his synagogue. He never forgot a single anniversary. But at some point in his life, he had looked at a woman lustfully, and so he had committed adultery in his heart. Think about that for a minute. Think about this. He never murdered anyone. He wouldn't harm a fly. And yet he had been angry with a brother and harbored malice at some time. And so had committed murder in his heart. And on and on the examples could go. Again, the ruler's flippant use of the word good to describe Jesus and to imply his own goodness betrays where his thinking and understanding fell short, and Jesus is the incarnate standard of goodness. Jesus, as God himself, not just a good teacher, immediately diagnoses this, and his diagnosis was simple. The one thing the man who lacks nothing actually lacks is need. Need. Or to put it another way, the one thing the man who lacks nothing actually needs is enough lack to see his need for a Savior. You see, that's the whole point of this story. And you can see now how, again, just like we can misread the words of Jesus as a way where Jesus was denying his divinity, we can misread this ruler and the context and make this a story just about money, and it's not. It's not. We can make this a story, and many have, about Christ hating on the rich. Or we can make this a manifesto, and many have, about some kind of like communist Jesus, where you can't get ahead of your neighbor, you can't have more than your neighbor. We take it with Acts 2, and you know, come up with these crazy conclusions. But as we see here, this is not a story about money only. It's a story about earthly treasure and the treasure of our hearts. It's a story about worship and idolatry. It's a story about where one's trust is placed, whether that's in ourselves and our achievements and what we can do in our own strength or the ultimate goodness of Christ and his gospel. Think about that for a minute. Christ himself was supported by many, many wealthy patrons. In fact, if you go back and read in Luke 8, you'll be shocked to realize that a lot of the wealthy patrons who supported Christ were also women. And we see that there in in, in Luke 8, which should help us rethink some things and the women's place in the church, some things that have been misinterpreted over... The years he is supported by many, many wealthy patrons. He is blessed by the land-owning wealth of Joseph of Arimathea, if you recall, who gives Christ a borrowed tomb. If the wealthy cannot enter the kingdom of heaven, we'd have to include, we'd have to exclude rather, the entire Solomonic reign of Israel. We'd have to exclude ourselves as well. Have you thought about that? We live in 21st century America. We are the wealthiest of the wealthy by the world's standards. You see, the issue isn't wealth. It's the dangerous power of anything that blinds us to our true need. And wealth can hold the pole position. And Jesus rightly warns against that. But again, the issue is in our definition of blessing and our definition of need. And so if you notice here, the disciples, like all of us, too hastily equated material blessing with spiritual blessing. If you think about it, the disciples were the first adherents of sort of a prosperity gospel, (laughs) right, which we see run rampant even today at times. Were surely this man who has everything must also have God in his corner. And surely those who lack these things must have somehow missed God's hand of blessing. And so this is the kind of guy again who should get VIP seating at the traveling Jesus show and yet time and time again we see Jesus showing by bringing us the widow and the tax collector and the children and by leveling with this man that the number of Digits in our bank account or the number of followers we have on Instagram. Those things aren't the metric of blessing. That there's room in the kingdom that Christ brought to bear for both. For both the wealthy and the non-wealthy. But it certainly belongs only to the poor in spirit. And that's what we see here. The poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Look at how it closes. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And when he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. But Christ looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard this asked, then, then who can be saved? You can hear all the cultural things they're importing, their incredulous nature. But he replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said to him, we have left all that we had to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come, eternal life. This final reply of Christ as we close is this hyperbolic picture of difficulty, that of a camel going through a needle's eye. This is not some location in Jerusalem, some have surmise that, that this is a gate in the city, and a camel had to kind of get on its knees to fit through it. No, 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 no. There's no, no real evidence of that. This is Jesus, again, being a master storyteller. And his reply here is the basis of what one preacher remarked. The difficulty isn't getting people saved. It's first getting them lost. Getting them to see their need, that's why it's so hard. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who has everything, everything to see their need. That's the hardest part, getting us lost. And it's Jesus, again, reminding us that any number of things can contribute to us becoming blind to our lostness and blind to our need. But until that happens... And only when that happens, we finally embrace Christ as the Lord and Savior he is. We finally embrace him as the true prize and true lasting wealth that he is. It's only when we see our, our neediness, and our desperation, and our lostness that we will be unafraid to spend of ourselves. To lay aside everything in order to gain him. Only then, what we truly see and make sense again of the gospel economics that Christ employs here. And as the revered missionary martyr Jim Elliott once put it, he is no fool to give that which he cannot keep in order to gain that which he cannot lose. For what good does it profit us to gain the whole world yet forfeit our souls or we're to seek first? the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto us. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful that we come to you on a level playing field. Whether we come wealthy or poor, Young or old, however we come, Lord, we come known fully by you, known as the real us. There are many, many things that we use to define ourselves to a watching world, images of ourselves we project to a watching world, but but you know the true us. And the reality is that we're all the same. We're all on our own spiritually bankrupt. We all on our own are wholly dependent upon the righteousness of Christ being imputed to our empty account. And so, Father, we thank you that that is true of us for those who believe. And we're thankful that that transaction has happened for those of us who believe and that from that point we are yours forevermore. From that point we are seated with Christ in the heavens given the position of privilege and that can never change. But that is what's true of us because of the gospel. And so Father again we thank you for this reminder and we pray that ultimately that would be the encouragement that we need to continue to walk after you, to continue to lay aside not just the sin which so easily entangles, but to lay aside even, even sometimes those good things in our lives which we turn into ultimate things and become our functional gods. Would you help us even to see those things and to put them in subordination ultimately to you, our true Lord, our true Master? God, would you help us do that, we pray.